episode 25 of the New England Sports Media Podcast. We're jump into a little bit different realm of sports media with Megan Urbis, the content manager for the International Tennis Hall of Fame and a veteran of the SID sort of landscape at the conference and school level. Uh, we're going to have a great discussion with Megan about her career path, but also the relationship between sports information and the media as well as the conference side and conferences and the media. So Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This this should be fun. My first ever podcast experience. Yeah, no, (laughs) glad to have you. So I met Megan as she was like an official scorer in the Cape Cod baseball league a couple summers ago when I was interning for the Falmouth Commodores. So it's pretty cool. And at the time you were working for the American athletic conference um, as a director of communications. So I kind of want to start there. Um, I can, I guess, run through your resume a little bit in that you were there as an assistant. Then you went to the Little East Conference, Division III, um, UMass Dartmouth, and then back to the American Athletic Conference. So I'm curious, when you get – you're a director of communications for an almost Power Five type conference. Power um, Six. Power Six. Power <laughs> Six conference. What – First of all, what is that role? Like, what do you do? What is your goal? What are, what do you, what, what is, what is that position? So that position is, it's, it's really a lot of championship planning. Um, the conference office at D1 is a big part of what we do is the planning, the execution of the actual championship events. We move in house to wherever we're going for whatever sport it may be. That's the host site. And then we're the ones that are actually running the show. So aside from your day-to-day, you know, we do game notes, you know, and I was, I was doing women's basketball when I was there. That was the crux of what I was doing. And we do game notes just like the school SIDs do. We produce our own packet there weekly. Um, we're, we're handling the statistics. You know, we're kind of the statistics managers and making sure everything lines up for the, for the entirety of the conference. And then the rest of essentially what we're doing on a day-to-day basis is just the planning ahead. It's the meetings, it's the conference calls, it's mm-hmm. doing site visits to make sure everything is going to be where it needs to be when. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of the day-to-day, but it is a much more long-term overarching planning okay. position at the conference office. So, so when you're what? doing, when you're doing those site visits, stuff like that, like what types of people are you meeting with? Like, what do you have meetings like planned out throughout that? What is that kind of like? Yeah, it's it's interesting because because it, it depends on where we're going. So you know, there are some for basketball. We we were operating the American has operated on a neutral site basis, but for everything else, you're dealing with one of the actual schools, and you might not necessarily know depending on the sport who's going to host that. You know, football it's up in the air, and you could have three or four sites in the running up until the last minute (laughs) and our football staff, I was, I wasn't on the day-to-day for football, but our football staff would have to do three or four site visits in during the season to say, to go to every stadium that's in the running and say, we could end up here. We could end up here. This is what we need to be aware of here. From my end, it was nice because we were at Mohegan sun every year for women's basketball. And so by year two, you kind of know what to expect. By year three, you know, the, for, you're on a first name basis with the entire arena staff. <laughs> and, and so I was lucky in that regard. But the first go around with that, which I was actually there, the first go around at Mohegan, I was an intern. And so that is a huge, huge learning experience. Just because you, because you don't know, you're, you're not going to always, you can plan as much as you can, but you're going to come up 
to a lot of fires and especially in your first go around anywhere. So yeah, the meetings are just, they're very, very much, you know, security focused. They're very location focused. They're very where the team is going to go. When are we going to get them in and out of the building? Um, so there's some of that. And there's also this, the media coordination side of it of where are we going to put this whole wholesome media? Where are we going to do the press conferences? So it's, it's a wide array of stuff. So at the, in terms of the relationship with media at the conference level, um, is it kind of like you're coordinating the more like logistical stuff for the championships and then maybe like media days and that type of stuff? Or is there any responsibility or any, any media requests that you feel like on, at the conference level? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of plan up to media day. And then once media day is done, your season starts and you're planning up to the championship. But there are instances where, and, and most often these instances, it's sad to say it comes when there are blown officiating calls <laughs> where you're the one having to come to the rescue essentially. And, and rescue is not really the right word, but you know, if there's a blown call in a game situation in a conference game, um, all your SIDs, you know, the, the institutional SIDs of the sport you're working with are going to, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to call you <laughs> and they're going to call you whatever time of night it may be. <laughs> and, you know, you got to get ready to put out a statement, you know, and I wasn't in a position where I was the one putting out the statement. Um, I would be, I would be the one then directing the call to other people to say, Hey, we need to get another statement. Um, so that that's instance a instance B is, you know, there will be statistical issues that come up, especially now with the NCAA and they've rolled out a new scoring plat scoring platforms in the past couple of years. And so there were quite a few hiccups there to begin with. It's kind of ironed out, ironed out now, but yeah, it's, there is some, you know, immediate, you'll get a phone call and then at 11 o'clock at night, you gotta be ready for it. But for the most part, it's, it's it's a little more of a nine to five job in that sense. Mm -hmm. So those like officiating statements, is that kind of like the NBA putting out like a last, a five last five minute report or something yeah, like that? It's very similar. It's very similar. And again, I was blessed to not really have to deal with a whole lot of that. That was, that's, that's mainly a football thing. Um, but there were some times in, when with on the men's basketball side where Dan Hurley got thrown out of a game and everyone's coming to the conference and <laughs> to get, to get a perspective on, whether or not he should have been tossed from a game. There was a game in Cincinnati where, where he and Mick Cronin got into it and when he was there. And again, I was blessed to not have to deal with any of that directly, just hear about it the next morning. But it's not, yeah, from that sense, it's never boring once you get into conference play. So you also were like a, an institutional SID at a Division yeah. three school. Um, why did you like jump from – like, how did you get there? Like, like you said, you interned at the American, uh, the American athletic conference. And then, um, how did you get from like, so take us through the path from the American back to the American, like it, what was in between? <laughs> yeah. What did you do? Um, so I really just, I had moved around a lot, grew up in Michigan to grad school in Tennessee. And the first job I got out of grad school was the internship at the American in communications. And I, kind of fell in love with New England, Rhode Island, just wanted to stay. Um, so I was really trying to look just, just to stay and so to speak, stumbled into a job at the Little East Conference, which was literally just across town there in Providence, they were in Providence at the time. And um, did that for a couple of years and 
was knew that if I was ever wanted to take communications a little bit further, I was going to have to actually do the SID job for a bit. Um, there's, there's a, there's an experience aspect there where you actually just kind of have to be in the trenches to know what they're going through to effectively do your job at the conference office. And so when the job opened up at UMass Dartmouth, who was a member of the Little East Conference, so I had plenty of connections there, that job opened up and threw my hat in the ring. I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> let's, let's do a few years of D3 SID life. And I really enjoyed it, but it nearly killed me, definitely. Um, it, that is, D3, being in D3 SID is probably one of the hardest jobs in sports out there. Um, and I did that for a few years. And then my boss at the American Athletic Conference left. She got another job, the, the woman who had been my boss there. And I was their first phone call. So got a, got a call sitting at my desk at UMass Dartmouth and said, hey, do you want to come back? Can you start in two weeks? And again, it was it was close. I mean, I have I haven't really lived outside of a 45 minute radius in seven years now. So, so yeah, it was an, it was an easy transition because a lot of the same people were still there that had been there before. So the, the, like the UMass Dartmouth, like, obviously, uh, I'm sure were you the only SID there? And like, what, what was your day? How many sports were you covering? Like, how, how does the game notes work? And like, and I mean, to be frank, there's probably no media attention, you know? So like, what are you yeah. doing? And, and like, are you pitching stories to people? Do you give up? Like, like what do you do in that position? <laughs> There's definitely an aspect of giving up. I won't deny that. Um, but, you know, the Dartmouth's right in between Fall River and New Bedford. So there were some papers there that had interest. A lot of our student athletes were local. Right. So from that perspective, they were always interested in what was happening. Um, you just kind of got to be ready when it come, when they come to you and, and there are times where you definitely want to pitch this out and send, send just an awareness email. Um, but yeah, at a situation like UMass Dartmouth, your job is just to, my job is just to keep my head above water in a lot of respects. I had 23 sports. Um, I was the only SID. I had one GA um, and that GA was working, you know, my, I worked my GAs to the bone. They were working 50 hours a week, probably. <laughs> and I was working probably close to 70. So um yeah, but you just got to be ready at D3, I would say from a pitching perspective, you just got to be ready to strike when the iron's hot. Yeah. When something falls into your lap, get ready, get ready to roll with it. Um, I was lucky enough when I was there to have my women's basketball team make an elite eight run out of the blue. They were very good. They got an at-large bid and they just kept winning. And so from, and then the entire state of Massachusetts was paying attention. Right. So I think in that respect, my D1 experience leading up to that had, had really helped. I knew exactly what to do um, and how to get the word out there. And, and yeah, and the girls loved every second of it. <laughs> had to do some media training with them as well because they weren't prepared for it at all. But, but yeah, that's probably a career highlight right there. So when you're over there, right, like what's the day-to-day -day like? Are you just grinding out game notes, like graphics? What's the nine to five portion of the day like? Um, well, depending on how late I had been there the night, the night before, it's probably like a noon to nine, noon to 10, depending on if you have a game, but at that level of D3, when you have that many sports, it's impossible to do game notes. There really are no game notes at D3. Um, we were lucky enough to, to have a lot of guys that were and students that were ready to step in and do play by play. And really the only thing I was ever providing them with was as the updated stats and, D3 play-by-play -play individuals are 
are some of the, they they do amazing work because everything they do is essentially off the cuff. They're not being tossed their talking points right in a nice little packet sitting in front of them. They have to find themselves. Um, so yeah, the, the game notes, it's just, it would be virtually impossible to do game notes now, but when you get into a situation like the NCAA tournament then I was doing game notes when there's a higher level of exposure. Um, but yeah, you're just keeping your head above water. You're getting the game recaps out. Occasionally you'll get a preview out. One of my focuses at UMass Armouth was to try to enhance their graphic presence and really try to get their Instagram off the ground. So that's something that I focused on a lot there. And then the live streaming, and that was something that I put on my GA's plate. So it, yeah, there's there was a lot, there was a lot. It was it was just a a, a constant. You just got to get through the games, kind of thing, especially on a Saturday. With the the social media, and like you said, you're trying to grow the Instagram over there. How do you like get an Instagram account like that off the ground? Are you like following alumni and stuff, like kids on the team? Yeah, yeah. The, a lot of it at a D three level is is kids on the team. In the, in the kids that you're working with, the student athletes that you're working with on a day-to-day basis, that's where you're, that's where the attention is going to be. And then from there, their attention, you're doing this mainly as a recruiting tool. The same as it would be for division one, obviously not on the same scale, but you want to be able to put something out, out there nice that, that looks good to help your coaches get the players. Um, so there, when I started there, there was an Instagram account, but it needed to be taken to the next level. And the way you do that is just by posting consistently and then tagging your student athletes in the content and right then and there, they'll be thrilled and they'll follow you. And, and then it just keeps, keeps tumbling through. So yeah, it's the gra- Yeah. The graphic side of things was something that, I mean, that was when it was just kind of starting to now you see graphics every five seconds and you have division one staffs of five graphic designers, depending on the school. <laughs> but at that point in time, it was just kind of, the door was just kind of opening there. So I'm curious, you mentioned like you had to do media training with some of the, like the new mass start with women's basketball players. Like, yeah. like for, for people in the media who probably don't know what, me, I mean, we all know what media training is, but like, we don't know what it actually is. Like, what, what do you say to them? Like, is it like, is it just like a, a one-time like presentation? Is it like a worksheet? Like what is media training? It was literally sitting them down as a team and being like, okay, guys, everything you've seen on ESPN, that's what you're going to talk about. Um, it's basically, okay, don't focus on you focus on the team, say all the good things that you guys are doing as a team. And <laughs> yeah, it, it's hit or miss. Cause some of them were deer in the headlights and some of them were just ready. So you throw a mic in their face and they're like, this is my time to shine. Um, but they know what to say, you know, so when you get, when you have college student athletes, for the most part, they've, they've watched enough sports, they've watched enough ESPN, they've watched enough to know to know what to say. It's just basically shaking off the nerves and getting them to, to, to make sure what they're saying is coming out eloquently enough. So like, what do you want, I guess, as an SID, like, I'm curious in terms of when media comes to, comes to you or comes to where, wherever you're at, like, you know, there is a lot of cliches and like definitely reporters get frustrated when kids just only will talk about the team and not talk about themselves. Like, (laughs) is there like, is there like, like, like how do you, and do you encourage, you know, the individuality of the student athlete when it comes to media, media interviews? Um, And I guess, you know, how much policing 
has there been or is there in the SID job of what kids say? Like, will, will someone, will you read an article and some, and some kid says, you know, I, I, I was a beast that game. And then would, would, would you, would anyone say anything to that kid? Like, like what is that? What is, what is the kind of the, the relationship that the SID has with the student athlete beyond the, this is what you should say. And is that it? I think it's, way easier at a division one level to develop a productive relationship with your student athletes because you don't have as many sports on your plate. So my SADs at the division one level, the women's basketball SADs, I mean, they were spending time on the road all the time in the world with their, with their students. And they knew who the best person for, for whatever given interview subject would be. Obviously if they're doing a profile, you encourage them to, if you encourage them to talk more about themselves um, and, and they'll do that anyway. A lot of, again, when you actually stick a microphone or a recorder in front of a student athlete's face, who's never done an interview before they trend towards saying, you know, the appropriate things. And, and, and then depending on the personality, some of them are a little more honest and I'm more of a proponent of letting their personalities shine through. So, I mean, there were definitely, there were definitely some that I knew what I was going to get was, <laughs> whatever the profile is going to be in the standard new Bedford standard times or whatever it may be, was going to be different than if they were talking to one of their teammates. Um, so I definitely encouraged that. And a couple of them, a couple of the good players got really used to it by the time there, a couple of the, a couple of our best players were, were local kids from, from new Bedford area. And so the, they were written about a lot and they, and they, by the time they were hitting the elite eight as seniors, they knew exactly what to say. So another thing I'm curious about in terms of that um, is so at the American uh, conference, obviously you worked with UConn at the time who was in the American. Um, can you kind of describe just what the media attention was like for them versus probably every other team in the conference? Um, you know, like if you're at a championship at Mohegan sun, which is obviously very close to UConn, how many reporters are there for the UConn women's team versus the university of South Florida? You know, all like of what them is the are there for UConn, all 40, 45 of them are there for UConn. And then on a championship night, depending on how good the opponent was, um, you know, by my last year there, it was just a, I mean, they didn't lose a single conference game in the six years they were in the conference. So so by the final year, you know, it, it kind of died off a little bit. They were all gearing up for, for what they were going to do in the NCAAs. But, you know, on the years that USF, for example, was, was really good, then you had, to, you had national writers there that were, that were really focused on what was happening and wanted to talk to Gino. Um, but, yeah, all, all 40 of the writers that I would average at the championship were all there for UConn women's basketball. Uh, and – they are an anomaly in the women's basketball world. Now this is changing, you know, in the past couple of years, it's been a much more even playing field. It's been really fun to see. Went to two final fours with UConn. Um, thankfully they kept winning and I got to have that experience all the credit in the world to them. Um, and I got to go a couple of years in a row. And it, I mean, the media attention for them is off the charts. We're talking like, the, the event staff, me, UConn's SID, Anna, we'd have to, like, when the media time was up, physically separate reporters away from Gino because everyone just wants a soundbite from him. He's a very prolific man. I've never heard a media, a media session with him that 
isn't profound in some way. That's just the way he is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was dealing with all Connecticut writers in my time at the American for the most part. Save, save a few here or there. You know, Florida, USF, UCF had some good media followings because they, they got pretty good by the, by the end of my stint there. But it's, it was all UConn. It was very UConn-heavy. What How about the other teams and coaches like, like treat that? Do they treat it as kind of like a, a running joke? Or do they get, are they like, why are we not getting any media attention? No, they know. Oh, they understand. Um, and they, to their credit, they all viewed it as, as a really good thing for their programs. And it was. If you're looking at, at the programs now, if you're looking at USF, who just beat Mississippi State the other night, if you're looking at UCF, they're very good. They should probably be nationally ranked this year. Cincinnati's really gotten really good. All of their programs have benefited tremendously from the amount of for just being in the same conference, we're just being in the same sentence as UConn. It'd be interesting to see what happens now that UConn's back in the Big East. But no, to the coach's credit, they knew what it was doing for them. They knew how it was upping their profiles. And kind of like the the pantheon of uh, college sports media attention, like the UConn women's basketball program, I'm curious, like, if they were, if you were like to put them up with some of the most prominent football and men's basketball programs or maybe some of the most prominent baseball programs like like a duke basketball or yeah, something like, or like, where, like, like like do you call women's media attention like it competes right like that's oh, definitely like like would you like like do you think they would obviously you can't put a number on it but like do you think they get just as much attention do the women get more attention than the men frankly i mean it seems like they might yeah they do um as they Again, should. that that could change. On the years that the men are that the men are good, it, it's pretty equal. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean, there were a couple of years there that the men were, you know, falling off a little bit. And you know, in the state of Connecticut, UConn is is what's going on. Um, right. UConn is is the focus for for a lot of people there. And also also something with with the UConn women's basketball team and the men's team is their proximity in New York City. So you got a lot of New York New York beat writers that and SNY is broadcasting a good portion of their game so they're very involved um so their proximity there also helps it but for the longest time i mean it just comes from uconn being literally college women's basketball was uconn for so long right and they just built up such a strong fan base that that's carried over so february of this year you go to the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which I've been to, and it's in Newport, uh, Rhode yeah. Island. I've been to the Campbell's, what is it, the Campbell Chunky Soup Tournament or whatever it's called. Yeah, uh, it changes every year. <laughs> Hall of Fame classic. Um, so why were you attracted to that job? How is it different than what you've been doing? How is it the same? What do you What do? You do? Yeah, there were two, there were a couple of factors. Um, so again, with my whole, I'm staying in New England, I'm engaged, this is where I'm going to build a life. <laughs> The American actually relocated to to Texas um, this past summer. It had been in the works for a while, and it, it just makes more sense for them, you know, cost effectively, location, proximity to their schools. It doesn't. It makes more sense for them to be there. So they they relocated, and I. I mean, they knew they knew when they brought me back that I wasn't going to be relocating with them. But it doesn't mean you don't take the take the opportunity when you have it. So I was lucky enough blessed beyond belief to fall into this job at the tennis hall of fame literally two weeks before the pandemic hit and i'm i'm still going strong it's it's been an interesting year it's been a really different year as i think is the case for for all of us just in in sports with 
everything that's happened, but um, I'm, I was really looking to make a pivot back to more of a feature writing kind of environment. Um, and this just happens to fall into social media for them. So in my current job now, I am running all of their, I'm, I'm the point person for all of their social media pages. Obviously I have, I have help. We've got a pretty, a pretty strong marketing presence, um, but I'm the one executing the copy, the content, everything that's going on for the, for the Hall of Fame open pages, as well as the, the International Test Hall of Fame general pages, which are more of a global presence. So when you're drafting material and like and content for the social media pages for this, what are you looking for? Like, are you looking for like mostly video? How do you draw people's eyes? We are, so we're in a really good position um, that we have a lot of good connections throughout the tennis world. So anybody that's following the ATP or the WTA closely is also looking at, at what we're doing. And, you know, this fluctuates year to year, depending on who the inducting class is. Is. It depends on whose name is being tossed around to go into the Hall of Fame and, and who, who the candidates are, you know, in the year. It's, it's, it's a yearly cycle. Um, induction at the Tennis Hall of Fame happens the weekend following the Hall of Fame Open Tournament, which is a full week in July. Again, I have yet to experience one of these <laughs> because everything got canceled this summer. So what I thought I was going to be doing from running a running social content from a tournament perspective, which I'm very comfortable with, have a lot of experience with, didn't end up happening. And now we're, we've pivoted totally digital. And so there has been a lot to work with. I'm in a position where our, from our museum, we've got an entire collection of items. We've got digital exhibits that we're enhancing all the time with everything that's happening with the pandemic. We've got actual tennis happening. <laughs> which in and of itself is always a good thing. Um, we've got everything that's going on in the lives of, of, you know, the Hall of Famers that are still out there and in the media. I, um, I'm lucky to always have something to talk about. And, and it's just a matter of figuring out how to, how to position it differently, how to make it more interesting, how to, how to give it a little bit of a scope in terms of the history um, and trying to amplify, amplify the storylines that are already there. And so are you a one person department? I know you said you have a big, they have a big marketing presence, but are you the only person in, in your kind of department? No, there are five of us wow. in marketing, which is nice. Um, so I, I report to Anne-Marie McLaughlin's my boss. She's the, she's the uh, VP of communications. So she's kind of, she's media relations and we yeah. help each other with that kind of thing, um, depending on what the situation is. But, but yeah, I'm, I am the one, anything you see on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. That's my copy. Um, that's my, that's, you know, usually my, my brainchild, so to speak. I mean, obviously we have the larger, larger overarching things that we want to focus on in a given month or whatever's happening in the tennis world. That's something we want to focus on. How can we put our own twist on it? Um, but we have, I have, um, Andrew, who's my coworker, digital marketing guy. He's great. He and I work together a lot on, on the development of graphics. We work with a lot of outside contractors too, from a video perspective. So, I'm by no means a video expert. I don't pretend to be. I can do the little things, but again, I'm lucky enough to have great people in the tennis world that that work for us and help us out with that. Well, Megan, we appreciate your time. Uh, a great conversation, a different sort of foray for us into the uh, other side of it's kind of the media world. So, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we really appreciate your time. 
Yeah, thank you very much. This is fun.